2 Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to be today. Um, some of y'all, may, it, it, it surprises me more and more, use uh, uh, you know, what I call a fake Bible, you know, your phone or on your iPad. It was interesting, I had first, it's second service, how many of you use phone or iPad, your Bible, in that way? See, a bunch of y'all. See, it's, they're, not just, they're not texting during my message, they're actually... So if that's you, those of you using the electronic ones, you're going to want to go to chapter 13, because we're going to start off in the last verse of chapter 13. Um, and so, uh, so there you go. We'll segue from that. We'll get into chapter 14 and work our way uh, halfway through chapter 14 today as well. Title of the message is Disposable. Disposable. We live in a disposable society, do we not? What's disposable? Well, more and more things, as it turns out. Maybe you're familiar with the adage, one man's trash is another man's treasure, right? Everybody knows that. Um, You see this plays out in marriages an awful lot. That, you know, in marriages, typically, you've got one person who's the keeper and the other person who's the thrower away, right? Uh, and, And in my marriage... Brenda and I, we're both keepers, right? No, we're not. We're thrower wearers completely. Our motto is, when in doubt, toss it out, you know? How many, how many thrower wearers do we have here? Who's with me? Amen, right? How many keepers do we got here? You're like, don't toss it out, please, don't toss it out. Brenda's dad is in your keeper category. He will not throw away anything. Like, he won't toss it out. We, we go over to his house, his, his garage... Filled with everything in the boxes. The garage filled with boxes. We have a running joke that, you know, when the Lord takes him home, that we're just going to do a storage wars thing and just open up his garage and just like, who wants what and bid for the whole thing. Well, the joke was on us because he recently moved and we had to go through every single box. And Brenda, in one of the boxes, you know, she's like, is this that broken tea kettle? You're keeping a broken tea kettle? And he's like, it cost 85 bucks, right? We're like, toss that thing out for credit. And all you keepers are going, oh, it's the tea kettle, man. It's 85 bucks, right? And so we're like, come on, just toss that thing. And so when we helped him move and we had to go through everything, he'd be like, well, I don't want to throw this out. Well, I don't want to throw this out. And then he'd say, well, do you want it? And we're like, yeah, we want it. We'll, we'll take that right down to the Salvation Army when you're not looking, that, you know. And um, so, yeah, some people keepers, some thrower awayers. And the question of what's disposable doesn't just apply to possessions. It also applies to people. And what do we do when our relationships are broken? Are they disposable? That's the question at hand here in the text. We're looking at King David, and David is a man after God's own heart. And David, you know, a man that we have been traveling and following, looking as we went through 1 Samuel and now in 2 Samuel, and we've been traveling, watching the course of his life. And, and, you know, the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. And we saw, man, he's our hero, and he has trials, and he honors God. And then, man, David got into a season of life where he got off track. He began to coast, took his foot off the gas, spiritually speaking. He began to drift, began to wade into disobedience. He, you know, already accumulating wives unto himself, which he should not do, and just sort of, you know, his heart taking him away from God in that way. And then in this season of drifting, he sees Bathsheba, his neighbor's wife. He has an adulterous affair with her. He kills Uriah, her husband, to get away with it, decidedly not 
actions of a man after God's own heart. And, you know, so we saw our hero go in that direction. One of the ways, by the way, that we know the Bible is true because the Bible paints its heroes warts and all, you know. And so we see David go in this direction, but David repented of his sin. He was forgiven. God was restoring David. And so, uh, you know, we see a man who Satan got the better of, but God got him back, and he's getting back on track. But, man, sin has cost him dearly. And, and it, it took him away from God for a season. It took him away from victory for a season. Uh, it took his sons away. We, we saw that the son born to him in Bathsheba was taken, died, uh, we saw that his sons Amnon and Absalom uh, were diverted off of the off of the course that they were on. You know, we want to exhort our kids and train them up in the way of the Lord and and tr- teach them to to go to that narrow path that leads to life that Jesus talked about. And David, through his sins, man, it rubbed off on his kids. And so we looked at Amnon a couple of weeks ago, his son. We saw that Amnon followed in David's example and that he committed sexual sin. He, he you know, fancied himself in love with, with his half-sister Tamar, and he raped her. Well, we saw then Absalom, Tamar's full brother and Amnon's half-brother, and he reacts to this, sees that David doesn't do anything about it for two full years. And so we looked at last week how Absalom followed in David's example of being a murderer. Well, Absalom murdered his brother Amnon. And after he murdered him, he fled, Absalom fled to the king of Jeshur. This is his uh, mother's father, uh, and he fled to him, to the area to where he had his rule, which is near the Sea of Galilee, and this is where uh, Amnon has, has been. And as we pick up the story now, he's been there for three years, um, and the question that we're going to look at today is, what will David do with this broken relationship in his life? And we're going to extrapolate from that and get some lessons for us. The bigger question is, what are we going to do with the broken lessons, or with the broken relationships in our life? What lessons can we learn uh, through this example? We're going to look at three things today. We're going to look at a divided relationship, a deceptive request, and delayed restoration. Second uh, Samuel Pick it up in chapter 13, verse 39, where we read, And King David longed to go to Absalom, for he had been comforted concerning Amnon, because he was dead. Now it says David longed to go to him. Now that phrase, David longed, in the Hebrew, uh, it's the word kelah, which means to come to an end. In the Latin Vulgate, it's translated this way, that David's spirit ceased to go out to Absalom. Here's the idea. The idea is that when this originally all went down, when Absalom killed Amnon, David was very angry, and in his spirit, he wanted to punish Absalom. But now, over time, what's transpired is that David has cooled off a bit, and now his heart just hurts, and he just misses his son. Right? And, we, and, and that's certainly understandable. But David's got a problem. Because our relationships aren't that cut and dry, are they? As human beings, what happens is David's dealing with a big deal. I mean, when somebody sins against you, when somebody wrongs you profoundly, and David has been wronged profoundly, this one son murdered his son. 
He, he, and he, he wasn't, it was his son who was the heir to the throne. And this is a big deal. And it's, and it's complicated as, as issues with our family often are. And so you've got David. It's not just something that you just get over. It's not just something that you just sweep under the rug. This is something that is a, that it's a major division. It's deep wounds and there's lots of baggage and it's complicated like relationships are. And so what you've got is you've got all of these feelings mixed in to this relational rift between father and sons. Feeling of blame, of shame, of guilt, of, man, lots of could'ves and would'ves and should'ves and if I'd only, you know, kind of thing. And it's not just David who's got the monopoly on this. It's both father and son. I mean, Amnon or uh, Absalom is dealing with all of his own emotions in this. He's dealing with, you know, this guy raped my sister and for two full years, dad, you did nothing about it. I mean, she was your daughter. She's a princess and you didn't do anything about it. And so, you know, Absalom's got his own blame and, and shame and guilt and, and it's all mixed in together. Father and son both dealing with this. And so as we're going to see today, that even though David longs for his son, this is an end to his, his rage, and now there's just sort of this longing and this aching and this, you know, he's my son, but it's complicated kind of deal. Even though David longs for his son, they're still divided. And neither of them's willing to reach out to the other person. And we know from experience, we've all been there, where you have a relational divide and, and, and it's complicated and you're dealing with, you know, issues of, of hurting and issues of blame and issues of conflict and all of these things that we work through and you're carrying all this baggage. The only way back, listen, the only way back is through humility and confession. The only way back is through a willingness to forgive and, and, and the, idea, the attitude, the idea is a confession that, you know what? I wasn't the man that I should have been. Somebody needs to confess that. I, we both made mistakes. Someone needs to make that confession. Somebody needs to come back to, to, to that place of a, of a willingness to forgive, of, a, of an attitude that says, what you did was wrong, but I reacted poorly too. You know? And, and it's just sort of that place. Who's going to say it first? Who's going to swallow their pride? Who's going to do whatever it takes to make things right. And emotionally, this is where David is at, and emotionally, we can identify with that. And even right now, you, maybe you're in a place, in a season of, of a division, in a relationship. Somebody's wounded you deeply. And even though you get to the place to where there's just a longing for what you once had, for, for what once was, and a, and a mourning over, we can't ever get that back, can't ever be the same. But there's still that sort of no man's land and something needs to be done and yet crossing over and taking that step and saying, I need to confess my part. I need to admit my sin. I need to be willing to reconcile. And then that sometimes is the barrier that we just can't get over. It's the barrier we can't get past. Turn to John chapter 21 real quick as I develop this thought. John chapter 21, the end of the gospel of John right before the book of Acts, last chapter of the gospel of John. Basically, what, what, what transpires here in John 21 is, well, it begins in verse 1, after these things. After what things? Well, it's after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Even backing up from before that, it's after Peter betrayed Jesus. Jesus had told Peter, look, everyone 
you know, everyone's going to forsake me. I'm going to the cross. Everyone's going to deny me. He's like, hey, even Peter's like, even if all the rest of these losers deny you, I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me too. And of course, you know, he does. And so after these things, after he's been denied, after Jesus has risen from the dead, after he's appeared to his disciples, after they know how it all works out, even so, after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. Many names for the Sea of Galilee, Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee. This is the same thing. And in this way, he showed himself, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, what's going on here is that Peter is carrying the weight of a fractured relationship. Peter carrying the guilt and the shame of, I denied my Lord. And, and even though it's at the place now where, hey, it's all good. He rose from the dead. He conquered Satan's sin and death. Peter still carried, sheltering, just borne down, weighted down with this attitude of our relationship is damaged. It can't ever be the same. I let him down. And so when he says, I'm going fishing, it's not an issue of, hey, I'm going to go grab my poles and go out and see if the fish are biting today. It's a matter of Peter's coming to the place to where he says, Hey, there was a day when Jesus said, I say that you are Peter and on this rock I, the gate, you know, I will build my church and the gates of, of Hades will not prevail against it. Yeah, that was then. And that hope was then. But we're so far beyond that hope now because I'm a loser and I blew it. And so now Peter says, I'm going fishing. The attitude, the idea, I'm just going back to what I used to do because, because all the promise, all the hope, it's all gone. I'll go back to fishing. That's what I'm going to do. And so he says, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. Whole another message there I won't get into, but there's, a, there's a, an entire message wrapped up in just that one thing about how we lead other people astray by our sinful decisions and our sinful conclusions and our sinful choices. I'm a loser. There ain't nothing left for me. I'm going back to my old way of life. Okay, we'll go with you. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out and immediately they got into the boat and that night they caught nothing. There's no fruit in a life lived apart from God. They caught nothing. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore and yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, children, have you any food? And they answered him, no. And you know it's bad when a fisherman doesn't say, well, you should have seen the one that got away. They just flat out, they're just like, no, nothing. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. And therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, this is the disciple John, says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now, as soon as he says this, Peter jumps into the water, he swims to shore, and there's Jesus, and he's got a fire going, he's got fish cooking on the fire, and he's like, hey, go bring some of the fish that you just caught, and Peter goes, and he drags the net into shore, and, and they join Jesus, and they're there, and, and it's, just, it's just awesome. Jesus has, you know, what they were going after all along. He's got the fish, and he's cooked it, and it's all prepared, the whole bit. 
Verse 15, it says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? More than what? Well, is it more than the fish? Hey, do, you know, do you love me more than, than you know, you got, a, you got a full catch, man. Do you, do you love me more than your stuff? Could have been that. Or could it have been... Do you love me more than these other disciples? And I think that's what it was because what happened is we're seeing Jesus is restoring Peter here. Peter denied the Lord three times. We're going to see the Lord ask him this question three times or restoring him. And I think what Jesus is saying is, look, you told me, hey, even if all of these other losers, that's my rough translation, but hey, even though all these other losers deny you, I ain't never going to deny you. And so Jesus is saying, so you still love me more than them, Peter? In this place of failure, in this place of you coming full face to face with who you are and the depravity of your own heart and being a man who actually did deny me, do you love me? And the word he uses, Jesus uses there, he says, do you love me? It's translated here, the Greek word agape, and it's an unconditional love. It's a love that, that isn't dependent on any outside circumstances. It's a love that isn't dependent on the threat and the fear of death. If you, if you stand up for Jesus Christ, you might die just alongside him, and that's an unconditional love. And Jesus says, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter responds to him, what's he say? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my, feed my lambs. Now, when Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you, I, I love you, it's not, it's not translated with the, the same word that Jesus used. Jesus used the, the word, hey, do you love me unconditionally, Peter? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And it's the word phileo, and it means an emotional love. It means, hey, I love you like a brother. But I don't love you unconditionally. I think we've established that. And he said to him a second time. And I notice how Jesus responds, by the way, just before I move on. He says, feed my lambs. He doesn't, it's not, hey, Peter, you love me unconditionally? He's like, close. I love you like a brother. And Jesus doesn't respond by saying, loser, get, get out of here. Till you can love me unconditionally. No, Jesus says, all right. So I got a place for you, man. And I told you that you're Peter. On this rock, on the profession of faith that you made, that you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Hey, on that profession, I'm going to build my church. Peter, I'm still going to do that. You can feed my lambs. So he says to him a second time, verse 16, Simon, son of Jonah, do you, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I... Phileo, you, Lord, you know I love you like a brother. It's not unconditional, but I love you like a brother, Lord. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him, Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you phileo me? Do you love me like a brother then? You don't love me unconditionally, so, so, so that's what it is, Pete? You, you love me like a brother then? Is that how it is? And Peter was grieved. Why? Well, because he said to him the third time, so that's how it's going to be. You love me like a brother. You don't love me unconditionally. And he said to him, Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you like a brother. I flay you. 
And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now, it's a remarkable thing that's going on here. See, because Jesus and Peter, they got a, they got a, they got a division, in, in, a, a dividing, a, a separation kind of in their, in their relationship. And it, it, it's, it's not so much on Jesus' part as it is on Peter's part. Peter's in the place where he says, our relationship is, is over, it's done, it's disposable, it's a, it can't ever be the same. And, and man, I, I've got a deep affection for Jesus, but, but I failed him. Maybe somebody's failed you. Maybe somebody's betrayed you. Maybe somebody's denied you. And what I want you to see is that Jesus, he takes the initiative. Just like he always takes the initiative with us. God is the responder, or God is the, the initiator. We are the responder, always. Jesus takes the initiative. He, he initiates. He goes and he, say, he makes the effort. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Peter, I got a place for you. Peter, I want to restore you. Well, back in 2 Samuel, that's not the case here. Because they're in a place where David, man, as, a, as only a father can, he's missing his son. He loves him, but, but, but things aren't right between them, man. And, and who's going to make the first move? Well, neither one of them are making that first move. Jesus, he made the first move. He initiated. He said, Peter, I'm going to meet you where you're at, man. And David, Absalom's father, Not willing to make the first move, which brings us to the second point. If you take your notes, write it down. A deceptive request. Chapter 14, verse 1. So Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was concerned about Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa, and he brought from there a wise woman, and he said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel. Do not anoint yourself with oil. But act like a woman who has been mourning a long time for the dead. Go to the king and speak to him in this manner. And so Joab put the words in her mouth. Joab here is, pull, is pulling a Nathaniel. In chapter 12, when Nathaniel wanted to call David on his sin, he told him this story just to kind of get David emotionally connected and to rope him in and to bring full in his face that re- realization That revelation of you're the man, you're the sinner, you need to see what you have done. And so Joab is saying, well, that worked good. I'm going to try and do that. Let me get this woman. And he whispers in her ear, this is what I want you to tell him. And verse 4, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, help, O king. And then the king said to her, what troubles you? And she answered, indeed, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And now your maidservant had two sons, and the two fought with each other in the field, and there was no one to part them, but the one struck the other and killed him, and she no doubt has David's full attention right now, and she's got his full sympathies. Why? Well, because she tells him a story that kind of parallels his own, not exactly, but close enough that David's like, tell me about it, sister, I know exactly what you're talking about. 
But also, she presents herself, she's this old woman, and she's a widow, and I mean, he's got a heart, he's got a heart of compassion for this woman, which is exactly what Joab is hoping for. And so there she is, and she's just pouring out her heart, and she says, here's my issue. And then verse 7, now the whole family, she says, has risen up against your maidservant, and they said, deliver him who struck his brother, that we may execute him for the life of his brother whom he killed, and we will destroy the heir also. And so they would extinguish my ember that is left and leave uh, to my husband, neither name nor remnant on the earth. My husband's dead. My son's dead. He's all I got left. And they're about to qu- they're about to take him away from me too. And she's just lamenting and crying out. And then the king said to the woman, "Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you." In other words, he's like, "I'll take care of it. Don't worry. I'll, I'll take care of it for you." And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, king, let the iniquity be on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. In other words, hey, look, I'll take all the blame. Thank you for being willing to help me. You put it all on me. I don't want want you to to get in trouble for this all. You can just blame it all on me. And so the king said, verse 10, whoever says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you anymore. In other words, king's going, no, no, I'll take care of it. Don't you worry about it. I'm putting it on you. I'll do it. And then verse 11, she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God and do not prevent or do not permit the avenger of blood to destroy any more lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. She says, listen, remember the Lord your God and don't permit the avenger of blood to destroy. In this culture, It was customary that if you had someone in a family die, then some member of that family was designated as the avenger of blood. This was the one that was going to take vengeance. This was the one that was going to take the law into his own hands, and he was going to murder the one who had murdered the member of the family. This person was known as the avenger of blood. This is the reason why God, in his law, set up cities of refuge in Numbers 35. So that those who were in the place that Absalom was in would have a place of refuge to which they could run to get away from the avenger of blood. And this is why this woman says to David, please let the king remember the Lord your God. Because he provided a place of refuge. And so please remember that that's the heart of the Lord. And, and, and so, you know, please do that. And he says, as sure as the Lord lives, not one hair from your son shall fall to the ground. And now she's got him right where she wants him. Verse 12, therefore the woman said, please let your maidservant speak another word to my Lord, the king. And he said, say on. Right, right on, sister, go ahead, keep talking. And so the woman said, why then? Have you schemed such a thing against the people of God? For the king speaks this thing as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring his banished one home again. In other words, she's saying, look, there's hypocrisy in your judgment because because you're guilty of doing what, what, with your son what, what you're not willing that should happen to my son. 
She says in verse 14, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. And yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. Now, verse 15, Therefore I have come to speak of this thing. Now, what she's doing over the next couple of verses is she jumps right back into her, into her, her tall tale. She's, she's, this is the next couple of verses, her just continuing going back to, to perpetuating her, fault, her fake story, finishing it out. And so she says, Now therefore I have come to speak this thing to my Lord the King, because of the people have made me afraid. And your maidservant said, I will now speak to the King. It may be that the King will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my fake son uh, together from the inheritance of God. Your maidservant said, the word of my lord, the king, will now be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord, the king, in discerning good and evil. And may the lord your God be with you. And now the king answers. She's done, done with her little tall tale, and now David responds. Now the king answered, and he said to the woman, Please do not hide from me anything that I ask you. And the woman said, Please let my lord, the king, speak. In other words, David says, All right, look, I'm going to ask you a question, and I need you to be honest with me. All right, level with me. Tell me the truth. She's like, Okay, speak. And so, verse 19, the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all of this? David's like, look, I might have been born during the day, but I wasn't born yesterday, all right? This has this, this got to be fake, and Joab had to be the one that's doing this. And the woman answered, and she said, As you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. For your servant Joab commanded me, and he put all of these words in the mouth of your maidservant. To bring about this change of affairs, your servant Joab has done this thing, but my Lord is wise, according to the wisdom of the angel of God, to know everything that is in the earth. And the key. <laughs> Basically, have you ever seen the movie Pirates of the Caribbean, where the guy says, I decline to acquiesce to your request, right? Means no, right? Her answer basically means yes. She's, uh, she's piling it on, but it's like, had Joab done this? yes. You know, Joab's done this. And the king says to Joab, verse 21, all right, fine. I, I, I've granted this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. And then Joab fell to the ground on his face, and he bowed himself, and he thanked the king. And Joab said, today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king has fulfilled the request of his servant. Now, why, why, why is Joab so emotionally connected here? I don't know. It could be a couple of things. We, we don't really know. I mean, it could be that he recognizes the favor that, that, that Absalom has with all the people. We're going to see that as the chapter unfolds and, and all. That the people just love the guy, and maybe he recognizes that, look, David ain't getting any younger. He's going to drop dead at some point. Somebody's got to be, you know, in position to take the throne. He's the next guy. Maybe it's all completely self-preservation on his part. And knowing Joab, that probably factors into it. But it could just really just be a, a genuine thing that he's recognizing. Some, some, this ain't right. I mean, you guys, are, you're divided. You need not to be divided you got to find a way to figure this out, David. So it might all just be a, a, a sovereign act on Joab's part, just trying to reconcile father and son. And so the story that he gives to this woman to tell him, basically the woman is a picture of Israel, right? And David is a picture of the avenger of blood. 
This is the picture that he's trying to show. And what Joab is trying to get David to do is come to his senses and realize, hey, look, dude, you're so willing to save this, this, this guy. You never know him. Like, he's just some small member of your kingdom. And you're so willing to step in and forgive this woman, forgive the son of this woman. But, dude, you're not willing to forgive your own son. Did, did you see what's jacked up about that, man? You've you got to figure this out, man. And so he wants him to see this. And what he wants him to understand is, look, as the king and as the, the chief judge, David is responsible to initiate reconciliation. And, and he's responsible to do it the right way. Now, how Absalom reacts, it's completely up to him. But for David, he still has the responsibility to try to reconcile, and listen, this is where it comes personally and intimately and maybe painfully home to us, is that so do we. We have the responsibility to try to reconcile when we're divided from someone. Peter, or uh, Paul said this uh, to the Romans in Romans chapter 12. He says, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Now, I realize sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes there's abuse. Sometimes there's, there's just, you know, there are those relationships that need to be disposed of for needful things. But here's what I know is that usually it's the other way. It's one of those things where we want to be so quickly to say, well, here's all the reasons why this relationship is legit for me to dispose of this thing. And usually... It's the other way around. It's convenient for us to dispose of it, but God would say, no, you haven't done everything that you can do to reconcile. Now, now, if you can stand before God and say, I've done everything that I can do to be reconciled, then praise God, you've done all that you can possibly do. But you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account for what you have and have not done. And I just ask you the question, have you done everything that you can possibly do? And I love the way this woman puts this, the perspective that she brings to this. If you look at again at verse 14, she says, For we will surely die and become like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Listen, here's what this woman is saying. She's saying, would you remember, life is short, David. Life Sure. I told a story a couple of years ago about a, a time when my daughters were traveling. My uh, oldest uh, lived at the time in Seattle, and uh, she had uh, Willow, my, my, my oldest granddaughter. And uh, my daughter, Caitlin, went to go see her. And Caitlin uh, had um, Holland, who is my number two grandchild. And at the time, that's all I had. I had two grandchildren. I have eight grandchildren now. Thank you, Jesus. But at the time, it was only two. It was Willow and Holland. And, and Caitlin was up in Seattle. And, and they were getting ready to, to get on an airplane to come, to come down here. My wife was up there with them. And so, so Caitlin posts this picture on Facebook. And, and it's them waiting for the shuttle to take them to the airport. And so there's Willow in her stroller. And there's Holland in his stroller. And there's my girls. And then behind them is, is it looks like a sidewalk sale at Babies R Us. I mean, there's diaper bags and computer bags and luggage and baby wipes. And, you know, just the, the, the whole thing. Just this big entourage of stuff. And uh, I'm like, oh, gee whiz, I hope the car's big enough to get these kids, you know. So they're getting on the plane. I'm leaving my house to go to, to Long Beach, pick them up. They're flying in Long Beach. So, so I get down there, 
And I come around the corner and they're standing on the curb. And I have one of those moments and maybe you've had, you know, you ever have one of those times where all of a sudden, like, like your, your ears start ringing and, and it's like, it's sort of, ooh, it's like you just sort of have this experience to where, you know, everything, I can't hear anything. Like if somebody were talking to me, I wouldn't have heard them talking to me. Well, here's what was going on. The moment I saw my daughters and I saw, I saw the kids there and I, I had this revelation. I'm like, well, this was me and Brenda like yesterday, you know? And, 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 and I'm, I'm seeing that. I'm like, my babies are all grown up. They got babies of their own. Now I knew this intellectually, but something about the visual of it and seeing it and it just all brought it back. It was just like, wow. And you know, how did it happen so fast? I mean, it was like, literally, it was just in a flash. And, I, and I'm thinking, life is not fair. Because what happens is it sucks you into its vortex. And so what happens is you get into this whirlwind and it's like babies and bottles and diapers and sports and school and work and bills and schedule and you're just going from one to another. Brenda was talking to one of the girls yesterday and they were lamenting just that they were tired and she's like, it's only a season and it goes by really quickly, honey. You need to, you need to embrace this. Your father and I would give anything to go back just one day with you kids. And they're like, it can't come quick enough for me, you know. Trust me, it comes quickly. And, and, and all of this happens, and before you know it, entire seasons of your life are just gone. It was John Lennon who said, life is what happens while you're busy making other plans. And he was right. You know, you blink and, and, and everything just passes you by. James said this in James 4.14. He says, what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then it just vanishes away. King David himself, he expressed that thought this way in Psalm 39. He said, Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered and that my life is fleeing away. My life is no longer than the width of my hand. An entire lifetime is just a moment to you. Human existence is but a breath. And then he adds the word selah, which means you just stop and think about that for a while. Recently, I was looking at some pictures of me and the kids down at the beach. And I, and I was thinking, I remember I used to put all the kids on my shoulders and walk them, you know, all three of them on my shoulders. And, and as I was doing that, I, I, w- I was thinking, well, I wonder when the last time I did that was. And, and I can't remember. And last times are like that. You know, you, they, they, they come and go, they sneak by. And the things that you do, the things that you cherish, the things that are like, you know... They, Walking your kids on the beach, telling your kids, a, a, you know, a story at night when they're going to bed, putting a Band-Aid on a cup, t- on you know, one of their cuts, or tying their shoes, or brushing their hair, doing your homework with them. And you know what happens is that on all of these times, there is a last time. And you'll get to the place to where you think, well, they don't do that anymore. I don't do that anymore. And, and where was it? Where is it? Where did it go? And, and I think, you know, if, if I would have known at the time that this is the last time, 
that I'm going to say a bedtime story to my kid. Or if I would have known at the time, this is the last time that I'm going to tie their shoes for them. I wonder if I would have savored it a little bit more. Paul said this, he said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, that word redeeming that he uses, it's a Greek word, exagorazo, and it means to buy up. To buy up. And what it means, it's, it, it's the idea that time is a precious commodity. And, and it's something that, well, listen, when it's on the market, you better buy it up, you know? Remember a few years ago, it was like, Oh, Beanie Babies, they're going to be valuable. You know, this is the Princess Di- Diana model. We better buy it up. Yet wrong. But time's one of those things that we need to buy up. And, I, and, and I've noticed as a pastor, relationally, sometimes we spend our time buying up the wrong stuff. And I'll tell you where it really comes home. It really comes home at a funeral. And I've been at some funerals that are, that are heartbreaking because what happens is you'll see people there that have been estranged from the person who passed away for years, for decades. The relationship was disposable to them. And, and, and so they bought up the wrong stuff. They invested in anger and in unforgiveness and in stoking the fires of bitterness and now it's too late. And now there's just tears and sorrow. David Brin, who is a NASA scientist, he said, why must conversions always come so late? Why do people always apologize to corpses? He had the responsibility to do some of the investigating of the shuttle Challenger disaster and, you know, what were some of the mistakes that were made and and he was lamenting the idea that, you know, it takes a tragedy. We've got to have corpses before we make some of these changes. Why don't we make these changes before this thing crashes and burns? Well, that's some good counsel for us where our relationships are concerned, guys. They're not disposable. And so that's what this woman reminds David. She says, look, you, you still have time to reconcile with your son. And notice there in verse 14, she adds this. She says, yet God does not take away a life, but he devises means so that his banished ones are not expelled from him. In other words, listen, here's what she's saying to David. She's saying, look, you're the king and you take your cues from God. And so God finds a way to bring his banished ones back. Hey, King David, how about you find a way to bring your banished ones back? Now, this verse here in 2 Samuel 14 is one of the best gospel texts in the Old Testament. This is a picture of the good news that Jesus came to bring. That that God devises means to bring his banished ones back. Listen, today, maybe here, maybe now, maybe you're in a place where you feel as though you've been banished from God. 
Maybe you find yourself in a place and you're, you're, you're like, I've made bad choices or I've made bad decisions or I'm guilty or I have shame or whatever the case may be and you feel as though you're banished from God. And what I want you to hear is that God devises means to bring you back. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death, but that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Here's the way Paul put it. And I'll put it up on the screen for you. He says in in Romans chapter 3, But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and in the prophets long ago. Now, listen, what, what he's not saying there is, Hey, God's got a way for you to lose 30 pounds and you can eat all the chocolate ice cream that you want. And that, you know, that's not the attitude. That's not the idea here. When he says, you know, without keeping the requirements of the law, what he's saying is, is that all of us are like the Apostle Paul, where Paul said, that that I want to do, I don't do, and that that I don't want to do, that's what I do. All of us have found out in very painful ways that we're sinners. And so we have guilt, and we have shame, and we have frustration, and we carry with us this burden that says, I would, I would love to honor God, but I don't. And I'm a loser, and I'm, a, and I'm whatever it is, I, I can't even do that. I can't go to church because I get hit by a bolt of lightning if I go there because I got all of this stuff in my past or whatever it is. And Paul says, look, God's shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law because you can't and don't. He says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. We're made right with God, he says, by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. You're not made right with God by having your good works outweigh your bad works. You're not made right with God because you all of a sudden came to Jesus and started living purely in such a way that God could stand to have you around, finally. You're made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. He says he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past. For he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in this present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, not yours. His righteousness, for he himself is fair and just. And he declares sinners to be right in his sight when they believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, God devises means to bring his banished ones back. And maybe today you're banished. Maybe today you're in a place to where you would say, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the guilt that I carry. You have no idea the shame that I carry. And I say, maybe I don't, but God does. And he loves you anyway, desperately. He loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on a cross for your sin. 
And what he says is that today you can be delivered of all your guilt and you can be delivered of all your shame. And maybe you're here today and you have this nagging doubt like, am I saved? Am I going to heaven? If I were to to die today, would I spend eternity in heaven or would I spend eternity in hell? And I don't know. And I say today you can know. If by faith you will just accept that gift that God has for you, that Jesus Christ died for you, and if you will say, I believe God, save me, cleanse me, he'll do that. He'll meet you here. And today, before we're done, I'm going to give you an invitation to respond to that, to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I pray that you will respond, and you will hear that there's a God in heaven who loves you, who died for you, who wants to be in fellowship with you, who wants to bring you back from a place of banishment. But what I want to do now here before we get to that place is just address those of you who are in a place where you have someone banished from you. Where you're in a place where some relationship, maybe up to this point, has been treated like it's disposable and you are persuaded by the Holy Spirit today that well, hey, God wants you to figure out a way to bring the banished person back. Figure out a way to make the relationship right. Hey, if it's possible as much as it depends on you, God says live peaceably with all men. Well, sadly, David doesn't do that, which brings us to the third and final point, a delayed restoration. There is a delayed restoration. Look at verse 23. David has told Joab, fine, go, get him, bring him back. Verse 23, so Joab arose and he went to Jeshur and he brought Absalom to Jerusalem and the king, verse 24, said, let him return to his own house, but do not let him see my face. And so Absalom returned to his own house, but he did not see the king's face. There is a delayed restoration. As we're going to see next week, David leaves him there for two full years. He doesn't bring him to his house like God does with you and me when he restores us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you myself that where I am there you may also may be. He said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come and I'm going to take you there. See, God, when he restores us, he takes us to his house. But David, he says, no, he ain't coming to my house. You lock him up in his house. See, even though David relented and he allowed Joab to bring Absalom back from banishment in gesture, it's just geography because he's still in a place of banishment. He's under house arrest, basically. He hasn't said he's welcome to come back to my home. He said, you know what, fine, bring him back. See, when someone hurts us, there's that tendency on our part to keep, to, to keep track of their wrongdoings, right? To, to, to keep a record of wrongs. And the Bible says we're not supposed to do that, but we do it, don't we? We bury the hatchet, but we leave the handle exposed, so that I can pull it back out and I can hit, and, the th- and there's, there's, a, there's a very natural psychology to it. And you'll see this in marriages, and maybe even today you're there, or maybe you've been there, if you've been married for a period of time, to where you know, is sometimes 
we have a conflict in our relationship. And I'm not talking about you left the toilet seat up kind of conflict, all right? Sometimes there's big things that happen. And they're like, I mean, you're on the couch, she's whatever, she's on the couch, whatever it is. And, it's, and it is a long period of time of, we might divorce over this thing. And, 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 you know, the relationships are complicated and it, maybe it's a matter of, okay, fine, we're not going to get divorced, but you hurt me badly. And so every day of your life, I want to remind you of how badly you hurt me. And so it, it, it's a fine, come home, but there's, a, there's still a banishment. There's still an arm's length kind of, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. What we do when we do that is we're placing excessive shame and stress and sorrow on the one that hurt us. In 2 Corinthians, there's a, a very interesting transaction that happens, and it's super instructive for us. Basically, Paul's dealing with a similar situation. And he's got a man that had hurt some people very deeply. And so what happened, they exercised some church dis- discipline, and the man was punished, and he was banished But after the discipline, Paul's writing to them. Listen to what he said. I'll put it on the screen. He said, most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it's time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, listen, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. And the point is this, is that true forgiveness means that we move forward in oneness. Okay, And what we're going to see here with, with David is that when he treats his son this way, he's really poisoning the well. And he's actually being too harsh in his dealing and he's sowing seeds of a deeper division. Because there has not been that reconciliation and that forgiveness as God extends to us. There is still that arm's length that transaction that says, you hurt me and so you can just sit there under house arrest. And so what we're going to see as we continue on in this next week is that there's absolutely a division that that is, is coming down the road and it's going to cost Absalom his life and it's going to cause David profound anguish. Why? Well, because he never followed through with the restoration that God gave to him. And you would think a man who was in David's shoes would have maybe a little bit longer memory. To, to, to recall how gracious God had been to him and how he's required to be gracious in return. I ask you today to have a long memory where, where that's concerned in your life and maybe you might consider all that God has forgiven you of. And maybe even today you know there's somebody that you have effectively treated them in this way. Fine, fine, forgive seven times 70. I got it, I got to forgive. All right, fine, fine, come back. But you ain't coming to my house. I'll forgive you. I don't want nothing to do with you. If you're divided from somebody today, I would encourage you not to leave that person overwhelmed, hopeless, in a dark place spiritually. But just as God devises means to bring us back, I would encourage you 
to devise means so as a way to bring someone back. And as we come to the communion table today, you know, the bread represents Jesus' body broken for us. The cup represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And what we're celebrating here is all that God has forgiven us of. And no doubt I would say as you're going to partake in this, and even right now, you know that there's somebody you're divided from. And maybe today, you know, even not partaking of communion, maybe you need to go and make something right before you come and partake of communion with God. Maybe you've got to make a phone call. Maybe you've got to drive over to somebody's house in the rain and say, would you forgive me? But look, we're not right. But as we close, what I want to come back to is that place of if you're banished today. Because God has devised means to bring you back. Jesus gave his life for you, and that offer of salvation stands today.